This morning's scripture lesson is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 8 and 11. Please stand for the reading of God's word. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints in the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels were about to blow. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The word of the Lord. seated. Hope I add something to the agenda from our congregational meeting to make Arthur the uh, stated reader every Sunday. Thank you. That was wonderful. Uh, to get us started this morning and get us into these, uh, to this text, I want to ask you a question. And that question are, what are the moments in your life when you feel the most powerless? What are the moments in your life when you feel the most powerless? I certainly felt powerless uh, yesterday uh, watching April's beloved Tennessee Vols basketball team get eliminated 
in the second round of the NCAA tournament, a team that some thought could make it to the Final Four, and some, like me, actually reflected that in their bracket, unfortunately. But you do. I, I was actually thinking about it. I feel powerless as a fan on the couch watching, you know, 18 to 22-year-olds play basketball. I, I can't make the shots go in. I can't overturn the bad calls. All I can do is watch what's going to happen, happen. Obviously, that's a, a, a silly version. And most likely, though, the places you feel the most powerless are when you are facing graver situations than basketball games, right? It's probably when you're facing sickness or even death. When someone you love, a family member or a friend, is sick or dying and you feel absolutely powerless to change the situation. Or maybe when you're watching a war unfold on the other side of the world. You see these images, right, of bombed out cities. You hear about the casualties. You despise war with every fiber of your being. But what can you really do, right? You feel powerless to actually do anything about it. Or maybe it's when you have a friend or a loved one that you desperately want to believe in the good news of Jesus. Maybe you've had countless conversations, you've recommended the books and articles, and yet you are powerless to actually open their hearts, right? You can't make them believe. Whatever it is, wherever the place is that you feel powerless, we have a saying when we're facing situations like this, and that saying is, all we can do is pray. All we can do is pray. And that is the right Christian answer. But if we're honest, what we mean by that is prayer is the last resort. Right? When I've run out of answers, I'll turn to the last option, which I'm not even sure will even work, if I'm honest. I think prayer has become the hospice of the Christian life. When we've done everything that we could do, then it's time to just make things as comfortable as possible, to make peace with the outcome. Friends, the seven churches in first century Asia to whom Re Revelation was originally written also felt powerless. That was the experience of the church in the first century. They had no social or political power. They were oppressed. They were persecuted either in overt or more subtle ways. They had no rights, no higher ups to appeal to in order to right the wrongs done against them. They had no social standing. Some had lost their jobs because of their faith in Jesus. Some had lost their freedom. Some had lost their lives. And what they felt was powerless to change their situation. This is the tension they were wrestling with. What can we do to ease our burden? Maybe we should just compromise a bit, just a little bit, to release some of the pressure on us. Maybe we should try to maneuver the political system to make things better for us. Right, is there some higher power we can appeal to, anyone who can really change our lot? Because I think Revelation 8 is written to take us behind the veil of prayer. Remember, that's the purpose of the book of Revelation as a whole, to invite the church behind the veil of heaven, to see our circumstances on earth from the perspective of heaven. And Revelation 8 is written by a powerless apostle, the Apostle John, who's been exiled by the Roman powers to the island of Patmos, where he receives this vision. 
And it's written to a powerless church in order to take us behind the veil to see what our prayers actually look like in heaven. And brothers and sisters, it is anything but powerless. Revelation 8 is written to restore the church's belief in the hidden power of prayer. To change the phrase from all we can do is pray from a last resort to a first resort. That when you feel the most powerless in this world of woe, that you would know that you are not without hope. You are not without recourse. You actually have access to the highest up there is. The power above all powers, the king above all kings. And that from his highest throne in heaven, he actually hears your prayers. And he answers your prayers through his actions in history. In fact, all of history is in his powerful hands. So, as we take a peek behind the veil of prayer today, I want you to see two things from this text. Number one, the power of prayer's reach. Number two, the power of prayer's results. The power of prayer's reach and the power of prayer's results. First of all, the power of prayer's reach. Look with me at verse one. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So just remember, we are still in John's vision of heaven that began way back in chapter 4, verse 1. If you remember, the drama that's been unfolding is that there's a scroll that is sealed with seven seals. Remember, all of Revelation is written symbolically. So in, in John's symbolic world, the scroll represents the eternal plan of God. His eternal plan to redeem the world from sin and death. And all these seals, these seven seals, represent the forces that are trying to stop that plan from happening. And the Lamb of God, Jesus, is the only one who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll. And what that means is that in Christ, the redemptive plan of God will come to be. And nothing will be able to stop it. No forces. But as you remember, as each seal has been opened, it is representative of some form of suffering that is unleashed on the world to hinder the plan of God and to harm the people of God. But here in chapter 8, after a brief interlude, we finally come to the seventh seal. And the seventh seal is finally open, but what happens is totally surprising. What happens is that there is silence in heaven for half an hour. And that's so surprising because all the other seals have been, well, quite loud, honestly. Remember, the first four seals were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. These horsemen whose riders brought suffering of, of conquest, war, famine, and death into the world. Those are loud, awful, horrible things. In fact, this entire vision of heaven has been really loud. That sounds, something, that sounds like something a, a grumpy grandfather would say, right? What do you think of heaven, Grandpa? It's too loud. It's too loud. But it's true. So far, we've been told that around God's throne, there are four living creatures that day and night never cease to praise God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They never stop. The heavenly vision has been one song after another from these four living creatures, from the 24 elders, from the myriads and thousands of angels, from the great multitude of saints that no one could number. They're all ceaselessly praising God. But here, in chapter 8, it all stops. And there's silence in heaven. Not just for a moment, 
30 whole minutes. And what, that's what John is trying to tell us symbolically, that what's about to happen is significant. We should pay attention. And friends, what is it that would make heaven go silent? It's so that God can listen to the prayers of all the saints. Look at verse 2. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Now, is there, is there literal silence in heaven? Does God really need everyone to quiet down so he can hear our prayers? No. But this is a symbolic way to assure the church on earth that God is listening. And it's a powerful symbol. Because the suffering church on earth probably felt that heaven was silent to them. Because they felt that God maybe was silent. That he wasn't listening or responding. Revelation 8 is teaching the church to interpret silence differently. That God is indeed listening. That he would actually quiet down all of heaven just to hear your prayers. That he will act on them in his sovereign timing. Even though he may feel distant at times, he is always listening. There have been hints about this throughout this vision of heaven. John has been trying to tell us all along that our prayers are present. Amongst all this glorious vision of heaven, our prayers are right there. Revelation 5.8 said that these mysterious creatures around God's throne are each holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers for all the saints, of all the saints. Revelation 6.10 said the souls of the martyrs who die for the faith are crying out for justice from the altar of God. They're saying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth but here in chapter 8 we get the fullest picture of what our meager prayers look like from the perspective of heaven we see just how far they reach they reach all the way up to the very altar before the throne of God the angel mixes together in this golden censer the prayers of all the saints with much incense. Some commentators believe the incense is symbolic of the righteousness of Christ, which purifies and perfects our prayers. Therefore, we need much incense to make them pleasing to God. And verse 4 says that the smoke of this incense rises before God from the hand of the angel. This is fascinating. It's so interesting to me that prayer becomes tactile. Something that is normally invisible becomes perceptible by our other senses. Right? It's not only heard, it's seen and it's smelled in the smoke of incense. Friends, just as Jesus knew that we, not, we needed not only to hear the gospel, but to see it and to touch it and to taste it in the tangible forms of the Lord's Supper. So Jesus knows that we need to know not only intellectually that our prayers are heard by God, he gives us a symbol of incense to assure us of how perceptible they are to God. He hears, he sees, he smells. It is pleasing to him. God loves to hear your prayers. And finally, just to give us a little bit of a hint 
of how powerful these prayers actually are. In verse 5, the angel mixes our prayers with fire from the altar, and he hurls it down on earth, and the result is explosive. Represented by peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. We'll talk in our next point about what some of this, what all this means. But don't miss the main point here. God is saying, let me show you, O suffering and powerless church, the effects your prayers have on the earth. They are as powerful as thunder, lightning, and an earthquake. Or in the words of James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. All of this is just to show us how far our prayers reach. Brothers and sisters, they could be offered from the lowest valley on earth, from the pit of despair, but they ascend to the highest place in heaven or earth. They ascend before God like sweet-smelling incense. He hears them. He acts on them in powerful ways back to the earth. That means your prayers go from earth to heaven and back to earth again in the form of God's answers. All of this to show a powerless church the hidden power they actually have in prayer. To take us from all we can do is pray to all we can do is pray. Author Annie Dillard, in her book, Teaching a Stone to Talk, she tries to stoke our imagination to this hidden reality. She writes, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? Listen, she says, the churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. Friends, if Revelation is true, no matter how much you feel powerless in this world, the most powerful thing you can do as a church is pray. The most powerful thing we do as a church is midweek morning prayer on Wednesdays. It's when your community group or your family or your roommates pray together. When we come to the prayers of the people in the Sunday service, we should put on crash helmets. But we are offering words that are heard by the God of the universe. And they're answered in ways that can only be properly described as an earthquake. Do you hear it? Oh, church, if you could see behind the veil, you would see that you have great power in prayer. Secondly, let's consider the power of prayer's results. Now, what commences here in chapter 8 is the next cycle of sevens that's in the book of Revelation. The first was the seven seals, and now we come to the seven trumpets. The seven seals were symbolic of suffering. They're symbolic of the suffering that primarily affects the people of God to keep them from believing in the sovereign plan of God. But these seven trumpets are symbolic of judgment, and they primarily affect the people of the world in response to how they have treated the people of God. 
In other words, it's the beginning. It's God beginning to answer the prayer of the martyrs in chapter 6. Remember their prayer? How long? How long until you bring justice for our murder at the hands of wicked men? And God says, I am delaying final judgment until the end, but I am taking action now in these judgments. I think the symbol of trumpets are chosen because trumpets are used both to warn and to announce the final judgment is coming. As in the Old Testament story of Jericho, which eerily mirrors this on purpose. Remember at the end of the story of Jericho, seven priests blow seven trumpets on the seventh day and the walls fall down as judgment upon the city. Therefore, these seven judgments, these seven trumpets are warnings to the world to repent before the final trumpet blows to signal that the final judgment has come. There's a lot of confusion <laughs> navigating these seven trumpets, but what is really clear in this text is that the seven trumpets are definitely God's response to the prayers of the saints. Notice how the sequence happened. Seven trumpets are given to seven angels. Our prayers rise before God like incense, and then he commands the angels to blow their trumpets. He listens to our prayers, and then he acts. Everything that happens from chapter 8 to 11 is God's answer to, to the prayers of his suffering people. It is meant to show the powerful results of our prayers. Notice that the symbolic form that comes from these trumpet blasts are plagues upon the earth. These plagues are, are definitely a reference to the ten plagues in the Exodus story in the Old Testament, which was also God's answer to the prayers of his suffering people. And what's happening in all of this, God is saying through these plagues that the same story of the Exodus is happening again and again and again throughout history. What is that story? The story goes like this. God's people cry out in their suffering. God hears. God responds by sending plagues as warnings and judgments. And then God delivers his people from suffering. That's the story of the Exodus. That's the story that's unfolding throughout the world. Remember the story, the narrative of the story of Exodus. First, God's people are suffering in Egypt. And they cry out to God for help through prayer. Listen to Exodus 2.23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Sounds like Revelation 8, doesn't it? And second, God assures them that he hears. Exodus 2.24, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He knew their suffering. He heard their cries. Thirdly, God responds by sending plagues as warnings to let his people go or else face judgment. These ten plagues are released on the Egyptians that affect every aspect of their life. And when the warnings are not heeded, the final judgment comes in the death of the firstborn. And then lastly, God delivers his people from their suffering. Friends, that's the exact story that's unfolding in Revelation 8 through 11. The suffering church cries out to God. God assures that he hears our cries. 
He responds by sending plagues on the earth as warnings and judgment to leave his people alone. And then God ultimately rescues his people from suffering, which we get a glimpse of in chapter 11. That's the big story that's unfolding in these seven trumpets, these seven plagues. The first four trumpets, which we read, I think are symbolic of the cataclysmic events that occur in every realm of earth. Notice one happens on the land, one happens in the sea, one happens in the inland waters, and one in the skies. The fifth and sixth trumpets, which we didn't read, are in chapter 9, I think are symbolic of demonic activity, which are often at work covertly underneath the worst that human beings can do. Now, we certainly don't have the time to get into this, but the Bible is very clear that there is a spiritual war going on. And that the devil and his spiritual forces of evil are at work in our world in the way that we are probably not comfortable admitting. One of my favorite uh, Twitter follows, kind of embarrassed to even say that, but one of my favorite Twitter followers follows, he doesn't follow me, I follow him. His name is Anthony Bradley. And he's by no means a, a charismatic, but he has a way of bringing this idea that we're living in a spiritual world uh, more into our consciousness. And one of the things he does on the regular is he often posts some of the worst news stories, some of the most awful things you could read, especially maybe involving the abuse of children or the vulnerable. And he will simply post it and he will say, this is demonic. This is demonic. There's more happening underneath the surface. But these seven trumpets, the first four cataclysmic events, the fifth and sixth are demonic activity that's going on in the world. What's clear in this sequence of events that is patterned after the Exodus story is that we are supposed to interpret these cataclysmic events and demonic activity in the world in the same way the Old Testament Israel interpreted the plagues, which is God's answer to the cries of his suffering people and, it's God, and of God's warnings for the world to repent. Now, I know how this sounds, because I shudder every time that something bad happens in the world, a hurricane, a tsunami, an earthquake, a terrorist attack, a pandemic, a war, and there is always a celebrity preacher there trying to tell you what it means, and that it is God's warning that the world should repent. I shudder at that. I, I hate it. And though these men may be very misguided in who they are targeting with their message, which actually, ironically, is the very kinds of sinners that Jesus was fond of spending time with when he was on earth. And although we should be very careful in interpreting events and saying with such certainty, this is why God did this. Nevertheless, this is part of the message of the seven trumpets. That for those who are oppressing the people of God, for those who are causing their suffering, for those who are enemies of God, these events are warnings to repent, to return to God before the final trumpet sounds. I think it's helpful to think of it like this. These are the actions that love would take for a spouse that is being abused. These are the actions that love would take for a spouse that is being abused. Imagine somehow if your wife or your husband was being battered by a bully, what would you do? You'd do anything to get it to stop. 
you would send every warning necessary to say stop or else. So, brothers and sisters, the church is the bride of Christ. And he sees our bruises. He hears the cries of anguish. And he responds through these warnings to say stop or else. So don't take it from the celebrity preachers. Take it from Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 13, something happens that we would call a natural disaster. A tower fell over and he crushed people to death. And people came to Jesus and they said, did this happen because God was judging them for their evil? And Jesus answered, no, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And that answer is brilliant. So on the one hand, he says, no. Be careful when trying to interpret why bad things happen to people. No. But secondly, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What he means is we are, in fact, all evil. Every one of us deserves to have a tower fall on our heads. So every story like this is an opportunity to repent, to turn to God for mercy. Finally, let's remember where the Exodus story ends. It ends with God's people being delivered from their suffering and brought safely to dwell with God in the promised land. And friends, that is where the story of the seven trumpets ends as well. Look ahead with me at chapter 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. Friends, this is, this is the end result of all our prayers. In all our suffering on earth, the church never stops praying what Jesus taught us. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what we just read. How that prayer was ultimately answered. Because after the last trumpet, there will be loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, this is the kingdom finally, fully come. The dead will be judged. The saints will be rewarded in Christ. The destroyers of the earth will be destroyed. And we will dwell in God's presence forever, symbolized by the very Ark of the Covenant, seen. Friends, this is where the prayers of the saints are ultimately headed. So, brothers and sisters, I ask you, when you feel powerless in your suffering on earth would you see what John is trying to show you behind the veil of your prayers that it is not a meaningless waste of time in fact it's one of the most powerful things you can do 
because God hears you. God acts in history on your behalf. And God will deliver you safely into his presence where suffering will be no more. Amen. Let me pray. Let's ask God to help us. Father, I do ask in this season of Lent where we are often returning to the fundamentals of our faith, prayer, fasting, reading your word. Lord, I pray this would inspire us. Thank you for just the look behind the veil of what our prayers look like in heaven. And I pray that that sort of power, we would feel the sense of power, of causality we have. And you would help us, Lord, to, be a, to become a people that are praying ceaselessly. That we would never cease to pray with the full confidence that you hear us because we bring them through Christ and by the Spirit. And that you are answering. You are acting on our behalf in history. Until the day where we stand and we say the kingdom is fully come. Where we no longer have to pray thy kingdom come because it's here. Lord, inspire us to pray without ceasing. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.